Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The U.S. picked up the pace of vaccinations in response to the COVID-19 pandemic after Joe Biden took office. There's a more concerted effort to get the economy going again, but there's a developing crisis at the border with Mexico. And in many respects, doesn't President Biden's foreign policy on the Middle East, China, and Latin America look a lot like Trump's? Meanwhile, in New York City, the mayoral election is slowly gaining steam leading up to the Democratic and Republican primaries on June 21st. And the heat is being turned up on Governor Cuomo. Journalist Bob Henley reports on political and economic developments for public radio, including this show, and also Salon, the chief leader and other news organizations. And I'm very pleased that Bob Henley could join us again today. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bob. You recently interviewed Reverend William Barber. Who's he? Well, I guess um, he is uh, uh, he's leading the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which, of course, got its start uh, during uh, Martin Luther King's lifetime and was taken up by his lieutenant, Ralph Abernathy. Um, he is uh, someone that has been convening something called Moral Monday, which has its roots back, I guess, 2013, 2014, where he, as a, as a minister of the uh, prophetic African-American tradition, began to uh, bring together um, first dozens and hundreds and thousands of people uh, that were witnessing basically the reactionary moves and, and anti-labor moves that were made by the North, Ca North Carolina Republican legislature. And it built into a national movement called Moral Monday, um, which just uh, this Monday had an amazing presentation in support of the 6,000 uh, um, folks that are trying to create a union in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, with the RWSDU, the Retail Workers Union. And hasn't he criticized Democrats for their failure to advance a federal $15 minimum wage? Um, the, the, the seven... Uh, was it seven Democrats? Seven Democrats joined the Republicans in opposing it. Uh, is that the, the fault of uh, Biden or, or Schumer? Uh, well, I think that should we they can, be uh, able to get their party members in line as Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell well, did so often? It's uh, it's worth revisiting the granular detail here. So I was fortunate in speaking with uh, Reverend Dr. Barber right after, um, because I know that you care about this detail, Leonard, which is why you're so fabulous. Uh, this was a situation where the Senate parliamentarian um, had uh, basically given uh, Democrats cover saying that as a matter of reconciliation, uh, which is a, a legal uh, Senate, the uh, parliamentarian way of, uh, you know, the Democrats being able to get something passed with the slim majority they have, and that's with uh, Vice President Harris voting. They could, uh, they had this huge $1.9 trillion Biden American Rescue Plan for COVID relief. Built into that was this uh, $15 minimum wage by 2025, so it's nothing to get too excited about. Uh, that fig leaf um, was, in essence, uh, you know, this is a $172,000 a year parliamentarian making this decision. However, when it came to the Senate floor after passing through the House with this uh, somewhat progressive measure, uh, to his credit, Sen Senator Sanders had an amendment that he offered from the floor, uh, which was really to memorialize or provide uh, 
Democrats or Republicans a moment of conscience where they had to vote on it. And in that vote, we did have seven um, uh, senators and the one uh, Angus King, an independent who caucuses mm -hmm. from uh, with the Democrats from Maine. And you had the two senators from New Hampshire that doesn't have uh, a state minimum wage. You had the two uh, Harper and Coons from Delaware who were kind of the, the proxy for uh, President Biden in the Senate. Vote no. And so uh, what we had, uh, despite all of the hand-wringing about this new progressive era, was it, it went down to defeat with a combination of certainly uniform lockstep reactionary Republicans and these pivotal eight Democrats. And so that's when I interviewed, around the time I interviewed Reverend Barber, and he said, you know, we have to hold these folks accountable just as we held Donald Trump accountable. And so that's the context within which that interview occurred. And he likened the Senate to the House of Lords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, 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 you know, you know when uh, someone speaks directly like that, that that's going to resonate. And the other thing that he observed is that it's also political science malpractice. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, I did this story and it was so counter MSNBC narrative. It was so counter the what is, I think, you know, a justifiable support we're seeing in the media. There's no doubt that President Biden is engaged in what's happening. We're seeing an improvement in terms of rollout of the vaccine. And there are some very important progressive measures that only last for a year in terms of uplifting uh, women and children in poverty. That's all true. But at the same time, we see this backsliding. And what he pointed out, Reverend Barber pointed out, was that where the Democrats have had success, and that is uh, particularly in Georgia, it was because they have galvanized this huge mass of people. There's some hundred you know, 40 million folks that are struggling that, that are on the uh, losing end of this economy. And if something like, you know, one out of 22 percent of the folks that don't haven't voted in the past who are struggling vote, you can flip states. And that's what happened in Georgia. So he's saying if they really want to have a long term period of, of political success, it means engaging and delivering in very real time these people that have been struggling all through the Bush years, all through the Obama years, where we saw a collapse in African-American household wealth. Yeah, but, but the Democrats lost seats in the House in the last election. They're evenly split with Republicans in the Senate. And uh, coming up an election, doesn't the party in power tend to lose seats in midterm elections? Or is there any evidence that voters change their votes or stay home over issues like the minimum wage? Well, I think we have to, uh, there's, there's so many moving parts here. One, we do have the fact that uh, most uh, folks that pay close attention, demographers and political scientists, we're talking about this majority-minority constellation that is the American polity. Now, you wouldn't know it to look at Washington, but we've been headed in this direction where a, a majority of the people are from a minority. Mm. Uh, what happened was the pandemic and the vote-by-mail turbocharged that phenomenon. So. You saw the electorate, which, by the way, has been winning the popular vote for the Democrats for a long time. But because of the skewed nature of our so-called democracy, which has legacies in slavery and in our desire to keep racial segregation and oppression integral to the way we rule the country, even today, um, we see that there's an, there was a breakout opportunity. Now, we already see that uh, some over 200 laws have been introduced to put the genie back in the bottle, to... Uh, put Pandora back in the box and make sure this never happens again. But the reality is that uh, you're right, that generally you see that slide. 
But we are in a situation now where we are in unpredictable territory. We've never had, this is the first time in the century with this kind of pandemic, with this kind of broad-based economic pain, which presents a, a tremendous opportunity. We've seen um, a, a rise, if you will, of all kinds of, and while it's true that the, the House Democrats lost seats, they also, if you look at the progressive wing, added to their bench. So I think you need to take a more granular look to see that the progressive movement, the things folks have been hearing on this radio station for a generation are taking root and they're growing. 18 states set their minimum wage at the federal level of $7.25 per hour, but Georgia and Wyoming have an even lower minimum, $5.15 per hour for workers not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's been described as being kind of Dickensian, but right. how does that how does that play out nationally? Because it's a piecemeal approach. Well, exactly. Now, this is something that has been brought into base relief because of the pandemic. What, what, and, and so the same thing you described in terms of the really oppressive nature of, of minimum wage. Uh, it's important to understand that uh, we know we've lost, oh, uh, well upwards of a half million individuals. Nobody really knows what a substantial number of those folks were essential workers, Leonard. These are people primarily of color, but not exclusively, who had no choice but to be in the face-to-face -face economy. And so uh, that's why this thing that happened in the Senate where the Democrats, you know, they had talked about hazard pay in the early days of this national tribulation. We talked about hazard pay. Well, that disappeared. And, and when uh, a push came to shove, they couldn't even lift this decrepit minimum wage. And, you know, we know from the organizations like the Economic Policy Institute that in reality, uh, $15 an hour is not enough, even with two $15 mm -hmm. an hour stream incomes, to rent a two-bedroom apartment. It's more closer to $22, $23. So you're, you're right that, uh, and it's also important to go back and look at the historic uh, racial segregation baked into something even as progressives of the minimum wage, as much as we love FDR. Let's remember that there was a kind of Faustian bargain that was part of that transformation, right? Which isn't often, uh, just like the reconstruction was betrayed by white supremacist interests, we saw that FDR in trying to attract uh, uh, congressional support, basically, you know, let this, the Dixie uh, Democrats get away with cutting out what? Domestic workers mm -hmm. and agricultural workers. And I submit to you to this very day, 2021, in the midst of this pandemic, that same injustice uh, is going on. And by the way, the workforce has become even more precarious, Leonard, mm. in the sense that you have millions and millions of gig workers, people that aren't even plugged into the social contract of the J-O-B to get workers' comp. You cite a number of, of uh, studies. Uh, you you look at what was Sylvia Allegretto, an economist right. at Berkeley University of California, noted in 2019 that the top 100% held one-third of all wealth, the next 9% controlled another 38%, and together they make up the top 10%. And also the Economic Policy Institute calculated that a $15 minimum wage by 2025 would save between $13.4 billion to $31 billion in, in major public assistance programs. So they're economically uh, a good idea, aren't they? Well, and that's the point. And that's what's not included in the cost-benefit analysis is that 
when you have a uh, a Kmart or Walmart um, basically pay low wages, what happens is that the taxpayers subsidize that corporate greed mm. because through Section 8 housing vouchers, through the SNAP program, through the food stamp program, through all these forms of social support that we offer, we are subsidizing the ability of global corporations to exploit the one thing that working people have the time of their life. You quote James Parrott, uh, a labor economist with the New School Center for New York City, as saying that the fight for the $15 minimum was only one facet of a much broader battle that workers are losing with the decreasing leverage of labor versus capital. Well, yeah, I mean, James Parrott, I mean, that's the thing about having someone um, who's got a granular grasp of what's happening. That's today's word, granular. Like he understands what's happening in the real economy in New York City, but can extrapolate it into its national and global significance. And so one of the things we've seen is that you have mobility, and that is in the form of capital, wealth, money, incredibly mobile, can move across borders in the twinkling of an eye, in a nanosecond, in terms of command and control, which has led to concentration of wealth and power in fewer and fewer hands. Meanwhile, Back down here on Earth with regular human beings, we find ourselves restricted by borders, punished for borders, and oppressed by borders. And that, that's the same thing when it comes to the thing you describe into jurisdiction. You describe how minimum wage and, and whether it be workers' comp, uh, you have a situation where in the midst of COVID, you have essential workers. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you're a respiratory therapist or a bus driver in New Jersey Transit and you're west of the Hudson in New Jersey and heaven forbid you do contract COVID and you're uh, successful in surviving, but you need time to convalesce to get back to work, you will be granted a workers' comp um, compensation um, presumption where you are believed by the government and you're helped to return. If you are east of the Hudson in Andrew Cuomo's dystopia for aggressive environment, why your company can deny your claim. And that's exactly what's happened. My guest on today's show is Bob Henley, who uh, reports on political and economic developments uh, all over the place, public radio, salon, the chief leader, other news organizations. This is Blended Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And as you've been suggesting, um, the U.S. takes a highly localized approach to many policies on, on health care, including the response of the pandemic on, on taxation, on education, uh, and uh, even more localization within states, New York has significant differences between New York City and more rural upstate areas. And as you point out, New Jersey has differences, whether you're in the south, the north, the, the east, or the west. So right. so uh, Jersey has a lot of local governments. How localized is the pandemic throughout the state? Well, this is something that uh, is, is probably because I'm speaking to Monmouth County, uh, where mm -hmm. I'm from now, and... Uh, we are, according to the New York Times ranking um, of COVID, uh, probably uh, 25th out of the 3,000 some odd counties in the country with the fastest and most aggressive spread of COVID. Uh, New Jersey itself, and this is kind of sounds counterintuitive, but right now 12 of our 21 counties are in the top 60, that's a dubious distinction, 
in terms of the spread of coronavirus. Mm. Uh, a much, fact, much higher, much higher uh, percentage than in New York or Connecticut. Right, right, and that, and that's, and, and, that's, and we're right next to each other. Right, and so, but if you drill down and look at the county numbers, I'm sad to say that we do see is where there is a preponderance of Trump voters. And the idea that to have a mask is to betray one's civil liberties, uh, you see an uptick in the disease. And so that, there's a, a reluctance to make that connection. We're also in a period of time, and this is troublesome, uh, we have Governor Phil Murphy, who is running for re-election. Um, and it, we, in the case of Governor Cuomo, a, 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 a governor running for survival each news cycle, who are entrusted with the decision to open um, the economy and to make these uh, significant public health decisions. And we are to be believed, to believe that there's politics plays no role in that, that somehow it's a bifurcated situation and they can separate the pressures they're receiving from campaign donors and economists, uh, from, from you know, corporate economists to get things back to normal. And so that's the universe we're in right now. Hasn't Governor Murphy extended the use of powers granted by a World War II law, the New Jersey Civilian Defense and Disaster Control Act? Well, and yes, and that, and that, and certainly with is that good? Well, I mean, that I think the problem here is that you know that was passed right after Pearl Harbor, and so um, the intent of it um, is you know built into it. And this is interesting uh, if you get into the fine print of the law, there's a requirement that once the governor establishes this form of, of, of law, that he has to create a panel of three individuals uh, who will volunteer their services in each county to assess the value of the private uh, parts of the economy that he has commandeered. And so what's happened in that, we're in new territory here, Whatever you want to think about the efficacy of it and about whether it worked or not, whether it was wise or prudent, um, the reality is, according to the law, that when he decided to designate certain businesses as non-essential and have them close, whether it be restaurants, whether it be uh, gyms, it was a form of governmental taking now, albeit in the public interest. Uh, but then a year in, in a democracy, in a republic, one has to beg the question, do you have an obligation to return to those calculations and see how's it going? For instance, a lot of small business people I've been speaking to operate soul food restaurants, gyms, you name it, are asking, why did big box stores get carte blanche to stay operating when stores on MLK Boulevard and Main Street were closed? And now a year in, do we need to have a conversation about how large capital used the pandemic, both in terms of wage and hour and commercial pressure and political influence to further skew the field to their unfair advantage. Now, Governor Cuomo exerts a lot of control over the schools of, of New York State, over uh, the its pandemic response, over public trans, transit, among other things. How does Governor Murphy's approach compare well, there was, and this is the thing, there's an arc to this. So in the beginning, when we had the denial from the federal government and we had this unusual situation where a predator president, uh, who I believe, like, you know, it, this is a major criminal conspiracy, uh, 
pit the states against each other for partisan advantage. That will be judged to be his greatest crime. So right at the point where you needed cohesion, you had Donald Trump cynically playing the states off against each other. In those early weeks- And, and saying that he didn't want to send money to, to blue states that opposed him. Exactly. And moreover, actually, and, and this will be forgotten in the fog of the pandemic, but actually um, the states had to organize their uh, paramilitary forces to protect the PPE. Let's not forget that, okay? <laughs> that was real time, right? That means get your state troopers and physically protect it from the federal government. I mean, I know there's a lot's happened since so I still get agitated about that. So in that abyss, in that emptiness, we did have, uh, we had Murphy and, and, uh, and Governor Cuomo recognize the need to pull together. That was a good thing. It was in the public interest. It was some cohesion. You did have governors, Lamont uh, to Connecticut. You had uh, uh, Wolf in Pennsylvania pulling together with some sense of getting our arms around this. And that's to their credit. But then what you saw happen is it kind of fractured based on the political pressures each one felt internally. And I must say, right now, President Biden is still haunted by the fact that he may have an overarching vision. He may have competent people like Ron Klain, but then he still has Governor Abbott in Texas going a whole other way. Mm -hmm. It is so local. CDC data show that the Northeast, especially the corridor from Philadelphia through New Jersey and New York City to Boston, has high levels of community transmission. And at the same time, uh, throughout, aren't there pushes to reopening? Uh, they all seem to be gain, gaining steam. Well, and, well it's interesting because today, um, what yesterday what happened was Governor Murphy dialed it back to his credit. He had had a plan to open restaurants more aggressively um, and the movie theaters, and he is dialing it back in response to the data points. Uh, I still think he's underestimating it a bit. And we saw that, you know, Governor Cuomo, uh, you know, has has tried to open things. And you, you have to ask yourself, and that's really the problem with his continuing being in the office. You can't help but to wonder to what degree is he using the, the controls and valves of the economy in the midst of a pandemic, which, by the way, still has a downside in terms of the variants that are afoot, the fact that we that it's clear that even if you are vaccinated and that vaccine is cured within your system, you could still be uh, involved with asymptomatic spread. So, so in in all of that, it creates the you know uh, this question where you're constantly doubting how much in his calculation about um, uh, what he's doing with COVID in terms of opening is directed by his bid to politically survive or the public mm -hmm. interest. Mayor de Blasio says that city workers will be ordered back to their desks on May 3rd. 80% uh, of the city workers never worked remotely. Right. Boy, and this is, listen, and this is one of the things great about working for the chief. This is such a story that, you know, it depends when you drop in to pay attention, right? First of all, it's important to understand that um, the mayor um, has said May 3rd, right? He says he's going to be in cons consultation with the unions. You're correct that um, out of the 330,000, maybe I think it's down to 310,000 civil service workers in the city, 20% uh, were working remotely. Uh, the balance uh, folks that are, you know, the mechanics that keep the, the police cars and fire trucks and sanitation trucks working, those folks don't have the luxury of working remotely. 
But even within that, um, the labor unions have not been happy with the de Blasio administration's track record in terms of COVID occupational health, which I have covered, Leonard, on a level of granularity that is numbing. And, there, and yet occasionally, well, our stories will get ripped off by the other papers, but generally there hasn't been much attention paid to the circumstance of the face-to-face workers that have died in large numbers. I'm talking like 340 civil servants aside from the terrible toll in the TWU within the MTA. Mayoral candidate Andrew Yang blamed the United Federation of Teachers, which represents New York City's teachers for, for slowing the return of students to classrooms. Has the union been slowing the reopening? Well, you know, here's the thing. And this is where I think he made a, a fatal flaw there. I mean, you know, I, I'm i not a great prognosticator. That's why I don't play the horses. But um, certainly... You're in um, New Jersey. I, you, I, have, right. you, you have legal gambling in your state. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I, I would say that um, I think Yang may have made a, a big mistake here. And this uh, requires unpacking the whole question of the UFT's response to... To this and I and I wrote about this for Salon and I've written a fair amount of, about it for the chief and my colleague Crystal Lewis has done a great job covering this for the chief leader. It's important to understand that when the UFT, going back to the TikTok of this, to the, the beginnings of this, that the mayor was and the governor was slow to close the schools. They were they were slow to see uh, what the implication was and teachers died as a consequence of that. And it's also important to understand that. The UFT brings to this a very sad experience. It is born out of um, a situation that increasingly is analogous and has application more broadly. And I'm speaking of the 9-11 World Trade Center, Rudy Giuliani, come on back, let's get back to normal. And that was all driven by Christy Todd Whitman, Governor Whitman, uh, then EPA Administrator, saying uh, that the air was safe to breathe in lower Manhattan. You may remember that particular chapter. You've been on the planet for mm-hmm. a certain number of years. You remember that. And now the, the inspector general found out that that was a total fabrication, that they suppressed asbestos information about what was going on. Now, if you were reading the chief leader, uh, you knew that that was a problem early on. Uh, back in the mainstream world of media, um, people don't know that. People don't know, for instance, that when Giuliani ordered the school's uh, back open, and when the UFT bought their Lower Manhattan headquarters to show that Lower Manhattan was back, that you were ending up with 2,500 teachers exposed to World Trade Center toxins. Uh, many of them have died since. Many of the young people, the 19,000 K through 12 kids that were in school, like Nyla Nordstrom, who's now founded uh, Sty Health uh, to advocate for the 19,000 young people that Rudy Giuliani sent into those mm. hot schools like a prop, okay? So let's remember that. So that's all that they bring to the table. When we have things like the CDC, remember this only but goody, where you don't need to wear a mask. You remember that one, Leonard, certainly? Yes. Right, exactly. So, well- At the very the beginning, all- Fauci said we didn't have to wear a mask, so- Exactly. Then- which means you got to listen for yourself and take copious notes because when it comes to the government and guidance, it's called Etch-a-Sketch. So, so we have the CDC now revising its recommendations for distancing in schools from six feet to three feet. How will that or other safety measures be enforced among uh, children, especially teenagers? And, and also, um, how, are, how have teachers and others 
school workers responded to the return to the classrooms? Well, first, I think that you have uh, you have groups. I interviewed Michael Caine. There's groups who are involved with uh, these are proud union members uh, within uh, the New York Teachers for Choice. Uh, movement. They are people that aren't anti-vaxxer, but asked what I thought was a reasonable question. What's going to happen to the mandatory DNA sample for the swab we're required to take as part of making the school safe? And the city didn't have a great answer. So thanks to those teachers and their intrepid independence, the city had to say, well, we won't let these companies uh, use the genetic information to create a data bank. You see, so it's important to have here in all this moving parts, you need to have teachers and um, and the power professionals engaged in their union, holding their union accountable, and belt and suspenders, a union holding the government responsible. Is New Jersey also opening schools further for in-person learning? Well, you know, we have this thing about, you know, the independence of the local school district. So you have a myriad of responses. You have you know, they're all like snowflakes. And so we have, you know, some several hundred school districts. They've all come up based on their own circumstance with a mix of remote, in-person, drive by the school, don't drive by the school. I mean, you name it, and it's in play. And so, uh, and they've had varying results as a consequence. I mean, the other problem with this is that, um, and you, you talked before about, and it's important to talk about the role of guidance from the CDC. Initially, and this was one of the rough spots, I mean, I've generally been pretty feeling positive domestically about the Biden administration, not so thrilled about foreign policy, and you alluded to that. But domestically, they had a kind of miscue in the messaging around returning to school, because initially they were saying it shouldn't be required. Uh, teachers shouldn't have access. It, it shouldn't be. Um, school should have be returned to in-person instruction uh, without it being mandatory that teachers be offered a vaccine first. And that seemed uh, strange. And so what you end up having is people, it's, it's, a, it's a conundrum because in a, in a free society, especially when the drugs have been, uh, vaccines been developed in what's called this emergency uh, 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 way of doing things, it's illegal to make it compulsory as a condition of employment. We should dedicate a whole show to that. Like what does COVID do to workers' rights, right? But mm -hmm. also um, teachers should at least, if they want to avail themselves of the vaccine, before they're ordered back into the classroom, it would seem humane, if we care about schools and children, to let teachers have that peace of mind. But in this case, the CDC was putting the cart before the horse and was suggesting that, you know, in the aggregate, and this is where it gets problematic, in the aggregate, the, the likelihood of transmission is low. But nobody lives in the aggregate. If you are a, a, a person, and I know some of these people who are a committed educator, who has an existing precondition, wife then for you, the situation is different. And Dr. Fauci's not speaking to you, he's speaking in the broad aggregate. And so that's the tension here that we have to own. You're listening to Let It Locate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. get back to my conversation with Bob Henley as soon as I can, but 
before that, I have to take just a, a moment to ask you to support WBAI. We're asking everyone who tunes in regularly to London Lopate at Large to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this great station on the air. And, and Bob, we certainly appreciate that not everyone is in a position to contribute to the station or anything else right now, because so many are, are really feeling fina uh, uh, financial difficulties from the pandemic. But don't segments like this one, where we can discuss underreported news stories for an hour, demonstrate why independent media are still a critical service? Well, I guess because so much of what we're talking about is uh, local conditions, right? I mean, and that's the problem. Mm. We've talked about this before. Um, when I started this enterprise, when I was like 17 and working as a reporter for the Ramsey Mauer Reporter, a weekly newspaper, um, getting paid 10 cents an inch uh, for a copy and then $5 if I was enterprising to take a photo. Uh, when I went Bob, to work, Bob, I have to interject that my first job in when I was still a teenager was in the 50s, and I was making a dollar an hour, which was not unusual. 40, so there you go. And so now you're back again, week. making a dollar an hour. It's kind of I'm back. <laughs> yes. BAI, return to the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps you authentic. Um, but you got a great Rolodex, right? So it was a good run. Um, but the, the thing is about what is unique about this is that it is a place where people in real time can dial in and have access to a mass media and communicate their circumstance. Right? And so that's been going on for a long time. And all of those individuals who are making a difference and shaking up the world one way or the other, AOC, um, Eric Adams, wherever, you heard their voices here. Oh, yeah. First. Well, we don't we don't have to worry about uh, pleasing foundations or sponsors or anyone else. We really are free speech radio. Uh, sometimes um, some of the things that are said might upset certain people, but that's part of the deal. So um, I, I one more thing before we uh, go back to our conversation. Uh, we are also asking people to become BAI buddies. Uh, that would be $10, $15, $20 a month uh, to be taken out of your credit card or your or whatever, your checking account or whatever. Uh, it allows us to plan for the future, and you can always stop at any time you want, but it's important to have that cash flow. Uh, you have worked in public broadcasting, so you know just how much this whole thing tends to be hand-to-mouth. Well, and I think also what happens is if you have sustaining members, then that is also a signal about the relative health of mm -hmm. the organization, and that draws more interest. The other thing, I, as a personal housekeeping, I do think that we, uh, back back before the pandemic, uh, uh, I guess we can say, was that pre-P, pre-P, pre-pandemic, we had an offer of I would take someone to lunch uh, and that person, someone did fall through in that and the pandemic interrupted that. So I, uh, not to get too behind the scenes, but I would like to, I do think we're, you know, in a place where I'd like to follow through on that commitment. So I'll, hopefully we could find that person and make good on that commitment. Again, the number is 516-620-3602 or you can go to uh, our website, 
give to WBAI.org, but please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at this station, we thank you very much. It has been, um, there are projections that New York City may not recover economically until 2020 or even later. Um, have you seen those? And, and what about New Jersey? Oh, no, I think you meant you said 2020, you said 20, you mean 2024? 24, 2024. Right. Yeah. Is that true for New Jersey as well? Well, let's look at the sourcing information. So um, one of the things I keep track of is municipal finance and the bond market. So one of the things that the MTA has to do in order to uh, borrow, which they've been doing a lot of, they always do a lot of it, but they've been doing a lot of borrowing recently because the decline in rider revenue and tax revenue uh, is um, they have to use the McKinsey company, uh, you know, kind of like Darth Vader's consulting firm, um, to do calculations about um, where the economy is going to be. And they have very smart people that do this. And they were saying, like you say, that they didn't anticipate there'd be a return to uh, mass transit revenues until 2024. I've seen summer was 2025. Uh, mm. But I think it's very important to uh, um, talk about, um, to define our terms, because this notion of recovery, recovery to what, right? I mean, that's the thing. And that's kind of where the, the neoliberal uh, Biden uh, um, situational awareness is flawed because they want to return to that halcyon January 2020, which is kind of similar to Trump's the when the economy was beautiful. Like, And so that's not accurate for us. And so um, I, I don't think what we have right now is what you describe uh, throughout the program is this very skewed, almost kind of new age feudalism, if you will, with an increasing number of people impoverished, struggling week to week to get by, um, worried about the long-term consequences of COVID, because that's the other thing that we're still not really clicked in on, right? So we know over 30 million people have been infected, depending on the literature you read, um, uh, the peer-reviewed literature between one and one in three or one in five individuals will have long-term consequences of COVID. Those are the lucky folks. So all of that kind of limps along, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you see a situation where I see that the 1.9 trillion um, basically gets uh, digested by the Python known as the American economy. And then the underlying damage becomes even more apparent. So I think you see, yes, yes, things look good. There's money pouring down from the top of the pyramid. A little bit might get to some people. You know, people with a few small kids struggling hand to mouth might be able to pay their light bill. Oh, yay! For a year. <laughs> and then the bottom falls out. Haven't we seen the movie? You reported recently on postal workers and a congressional investigation into the U.S. Postal Service's response to the pandemic. Have postal workers been particularly hard hit by COVID-19? Well, yeah. So here's the thing. You, you know who their boss is, right? That Louis DeJoy. How responsible oh, is he? Yeah, he's still hanging in. I mean, there's a desire to get rid of him, but he was the, the kind of Tony Soprano guy. Hey, mm -hmm. Donald, yeah, I'll take it apart for you. I know people don't like ethnic stereotypes, but believe me, I've been in a room like with these people like this, and this is authentic, right? And he came to do a job, and he's doing a job. He's been dismantling the post office. Uh, he's continuing to do it. And this is the guy that inherited this critical architecture and so one of the why can't he be why can't he be fired by by biden well, because there are so many democrats 
who are opposing him, including well, uh, Carolyn Maloney of New York City. Right, right. Here's Ducks and Rose. So this thing has been the post office was split off back in the 70s as part of like solving the great postal strike into this freestanding entity, this kind of independent quasi-governmental entity that has a postal board of governors. And Biden is taking steps appropriately in a competent fashion to replace them, at which point it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a Rube Goldberg contraption, but eventually the will of the people will be felt. In the meantime, the guy can do a lot of damage. What's happened with the postal worker situation is that you have, again, the architecture of 50 states and tribal regions, uh, all with their own local responses and takes on this pandemic, and a, a federal enterprise that's all over the place that has 600,000 employees, where they came up with guidance when it came to things like you have to wear a mask. It, and it depends on the setting, even though it was a federal installation, where was this? So if you're in a place like Manhattan, where there's some in New York City, where it's relatively enlightened in terms of wearing a mask, why then you were lucky if you were a postal clerk. If you're in one of the reactionary parts of New Jersey or upstate New York, where Trump is still king and they're upset he was deposed, why then you're, you have to deal with the fact that, you know, people are going to be maskless and it's your problem. And so as a consequence, um, they uh, got sick. There are many of them. Dozens and dozens have died. The unions have done their best to keep track of it. There was no real contact tracing. So the disease spread will-nilly through the federal civil service. And as a consequence of that, it has reinforced the tragedies in communities of color because who's doing the essential work? And so now what's happening is we see the postal authorities not disclosing who has died because they're concerned about the liability. We've been here before. And so Congresswoman Maloney, to her credit, always a friend of working people, is asking and trying to hold to account that the post office uh, be dis disclosed the people that have died and be transparent about the number of people that are sick. And, and that's the thing that's going to be important, because what's coming next is going to be a, it's a, we're in it already, even though you won't, you know, hear about it, a massive public health crisis, which is the knockoff effect of this pandemic. My guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today is Bob Henley. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Governor Cuomo is facing investigation, possibly criminal investigation for his handling of the pandemic in, in nursing homes and for his treatment of a number of women. And he said he won't resign. Um, I, I know you can't predict the future, but do you have a feeling that he, he may be able to weather this storm? Well, so I think some polling came out that showed that he has just enough yeah. to hang on. And so, a majority of voters, think, well, it's 50%, but that's still a majority, don't think he should resign. Right. So, And there's other polls that it wasn't as good, but what I'm getting at is that we're both saying the same thing. He has enough of a you know there's something uh i do believe in the new york uh water where they do like a bully to be honest <laughs> now let's be honest you know the same thing's true with mass shootings americans like them now i really i I'm, I'm totally serious we keep doing it it's not something that we're upset about and we're amused by it and we're titillated by it so yes i do believe that that andrew cuomo could uh perhaps right at the storm. I think that re-election might be a bridge too far, 
But um, I think that um, the, the, the aggressive smash mouth, bully, winner take all sensibility is strong in New York and people kind of like it. Well, you say his relations with labor is a hate, love, hate relationship. <laughs> so what, uh, what, where are the unions on all of this? Well, you have to corner them. Um, he, here's the thing. So when he came in, um, um, you know, back in 2010, when he came out of the attorney general's office, he was fashioning himself as what looked to be the, the thing of the day, which was kind of a, a democratic, feel good, better looking than Scott Walker and Chris Christie kind of Demopublicat. He was a state oh, attorney general at the time. Right, right, right. But he was, he, he, because I attended that, um, uh, that convention where he was talking about something called the new Democratic Party, not to be mm. mistaken with the old Democratic And he Party. was going to be a new kind of Democrat, exactly. willing to oppose exactly. the generate public employee contracts exactly. and pensions. Thank you. And, and, and he was going to stand up for those oppressed taxpayers who've been beleaguered by the parasite public unions. So, you know, he tried on that hairstyle for a while. It worked for a while. He did some damage to the trust between public unions. And then it was a little thing happened where Joe, Mr. Crowley got unseated by this authentic leader, AOC. Nobody saw that coming. So Andrew, being able to avail himself of a new hairstyle, all of a sudden found unions. And so he did make alliances and he did things that were helpful to them. And of course, positioning himself to look like the champion of unions when it suited him. Everything is a tool in his arsenal. There and is nothing write, that's done for some sense of greater good. You write that according to John Samuelson, the president of the Transport Workers Union of America, Cuomo's problems have had a salutary effect on the tens of thousands of union members who work for the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Well, and I'll give you an example of how that happened. So in, in, in this case, you have a, a situation where the MTA is a universe that's ruled over by um, Andrew Cuomo, um, who does have this very kind of uh, uh, oppressive, authoritarian, uh, masculine way of doing business. And so that is permeated in often the adversarial way that the board and the MTA manages itself in an adversarial relationship, which to be fair, really started long before uh, Cuomo. If you do any reporting about the transit authority, you see the bureaucracy is just brutal. Um, I mean, to the point that when during the uh, pandemic in the very beginning, transit workers um, that you know read the Financial Times were clued in more than city officials about the pandemic and wanted to wear masks, right? And they were written up and they were punished, Leonard, because oh, it didn't- And now if they don't wear the mask, they're written up and punished. Right, right, right. And so so the union um, you know, uh, rallied to that cause, supported workers. It happened authentically in social media and workers individually stood up and then the union followed, but that happens, that's how change occurs. But all during that period of time, um, the union finally got the, the MTA to uh, go out ahead of the CDC and start handing out masks. So a couple of days before the C CDC got religion and told us what we all knew, the CDC, the MTA to their credit, started doing that. But you do have a situation where when it looked like there was gonna be a budget crunch, the TW had a contract coming up, uh, and this is before the pandemic, which is a universal way, all of a sudden the Empire Institute, which is a conservative think tank, 
did this thing it does it annually where it finds uh, miscreants that make like hundreds of thousand dollars above their salary and then started calling into question the um, the, the way the MTA was managed and that all this money was being paid in overtime. Now, to get out ahead of that, and you know how it goes, Marsha Kramer gets the report, she runs to Cuomo and Larry Schwartz is, is one of his lieutenants and they wring their hands about the fraud and corruption by the transit workers and try to position themselves on being the right side, beating up on big labor. Well, they were wrong because in reality, it was not a systemic fraud. It was not something that was uh, widespread and was a consequence. This overtime spike was actually a consequence that the after abandoning the subways and not fixing them for a generation, they had this big reset which was going to require thousands of workers, and they didn't hire enough to accomplish it. And so a small group of workers that they were willing to hire accomplished it, and they were punished with being beat up on because of the fact they got overtime because of the lack of planning of hiring enough people. So, yes, at that point, then, you know, uh, I think Samuelson made the point that that uh, Cuomo's comments were reminiscent of Donald Trump because he was describing something that was on its face patently false. But some defenders of the governor argue that Democratic politicians, uh, they mentioned Al Franken, for example, have suffered repercussions from their conduct while Republicans have not. Is there an asymmetry in how the parties have fared in the face of allegations of misconduct? If, if a Democrat had said things about grabbing women by the by their genitals, as uh, the candidate Trump did, uh, would they even have a chance? Well, I, I think it depends on the sweepstakes that you're trying to handicap, right? Well, so, or, or, or let's look at some of the others right now. We have Ron Johnson, Ted Cruz, Mo Brooks, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, they, uh, they're not as under attack in the way that, that uh, Cuomo is. Well, because it's their behavior isn't out of the expectation of their base. Hmm. So the degree to which they, and so it is true that I think Democrats do have a burden that they have to have some level of enlightenment, but I can flip that on its head. Let's give you an example of something that I believe was a, a criminal conspiracy uh, that involved uh, certainly uh, by association and inference, Governor Cuomo in a large way, something called Bridgegate. Now, in Bridgegate, which was perpetrated by the Port Authority and by um, uh, this guy Weinstein and um, by his uh, Bill Baroni, who were both uh, apparatchiks of uh, Chris Christie's universe that were working in the Port Authority, um, they were, you know, uh, involved in doing this on behalf of Governor Christie, using the Port Authority as a prop on the anniversary of 9-11 to alter traffic. Now, the reality is, did anyone ever really get to the bottom? Did Governor Cuomo not know what had gone on? Are they? And so Pat Foy was the executive director of the Port Authority at the time, and he admitted under oath in federal court in the Bridgegrade trial that he released a, a press release explaining it away that he knew to be false. And what was Andrew Cuomo's response? But to give him the MTA to run. Huh. Bob, um, I mentioned earlier that you can be followed in many different uh, places. Uh, you want to give us some of the, the, the places where my listeners can follow you when you're not on our show? Sure. Uh, Twitter is, <laughs> like, for example, Twitter, it's Stuck Nation. 
Yes, stuck names. Yes, yes. And then also, um, uh, also I take direct messages there at Stuck Nation, and then uh, my work is archived at Muckrack, M-U-S-C-K, Rack, R-A-C-K. Type in Henley, and you'll get several iterations. Um, and the chief leader is also dot com. A, a, a dot com also, mm-hmm. and then also uh, Salon. And that was salon.com slash writer slash Bob Henley. Right, exactly. And you'll get the whole thing. And then I also do a lot of work with Professor Richard Wolf. I'm, I'm working um, on a book uh, called Stuck Nation, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, which the folks at Democracy at Work are going to be publishing. So I'm very excited about that. Just one more thing. Um, Georgia and other states uh, dominated by conservatives have been accused of trying to institute new Jim Crow type laws. Is there anything uh, that can stop that now that the Supreme Court is so stacked? Well, no, I mean, that's why H.R. 1 coming out of the House in terms of voting rights is uh, the thing that uh, is going to be definitive, really, about where we are. And that is that soup to nuts, comprehensive voting rights bill. Um, I, I think it's also the John Lewis Act. It has different names, but it is the most important piece of legislation um, and it's gotten itself out of the House. And so it is a moment of truth of uh, epic proportions for the Senate because it involves the question of the filibuster rule. And it is it is going to be defining. Um, if uh, the Democrats fail, as they did with the minimum wage, to deliver on behalf of um, future generations and and the, the so-called mission statement of the United States, then we, it'll really be a dark day. So that's that's where the linchpin is. I Also, you have to fight these things granularly, right? So it's important to support those states. And that's why Reverend Barber's point is so instructive that there's a connection between the fight for 15, the fight for uh, against right-to-work states, and basic workers' rights, and these essential political rights. Bob Henley, thank you so much for being on our show again. It was a pleasure. Let's do it again soon. We will. And that brings us to the end of this show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's discussion. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. So we're asking anyone who isn't already a supporter of the station to go to give to WBAI.org online or to call 516-620-3602 to become a member of the station. And we'll hope you will join us for tomorrow's show when my executive producer, Jesse Lent, and I will be taking your calls about the things you're most looking forward to doing once the world returns to some semblance of normalcy. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.